join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. I'm Mark Samuels. Uh, I was born in Colorado, in Denver, and uh, moved to New Orleans in about 1968. 68. And um, how old were you? Six at the time. Six years? I was, um, my dad was transferred here with Shell Oil Company. Gotcha. Okay. And so, I mean, your life mostly, as you know it, has been here? Mostly. Yeah. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I moved away. Mm -hmm. And I was away for, um, between college and my first job, I was away for about nine years. Gotcha. Did y'all have family back in Colorado? Would y'all ever visit there? Uh, no. 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 Where was everybody else? Originally? Most of our family was in either Cape Girardeau or St. Louis, Missouri. I gotcha. Or uh, Paragould, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. Okay. And um, in your household as a child, um, what is... Were either one of your parents like really big into music? I mean, what what were you hearing? And like maybe your earliest memory? Well, I don't. My dad had a bunch of uh, Tito Puente, uh -huh. and um, I say a bunch. I think he had two Tito Puente albums. Okay. On vinyl, and um, I can't say that there was. I I can't say I grew up in a house that had music going all the time. Sure. Um, I think that they were into uh, kind of, uh, I remember watching the Lawrence Welk show sure. on Saturday nights when my parents were getting ready to go out. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember that as a kid, Yeah, that they would have that on. So um, show tunes, things like that. Gotcha. Um, was there a point in your life when you were kind of allowed to touch the record player or formally introduced to music like you know this is what this is or you know uh, you know I don't think so no I don't, I don't I don't remember I don't remember that we certainly they had a stereo of some sort yeah I don't recall it there was not I don't think there was a turntable on the system I think the out the vinyl that they had that I remember was just in a box sure um, I don't recall it being ever ever seeing it being played. Right, wasn't um, very prominent. And um, I don't I don't really remember it. No. Uh, growing up with a lot of music in the background. I'm talking about you know certainly once I got to middle school and and so forth I had my own uh, interest in music but not. Yeah. What was it by middle school? What did you like? What were your tastes? Um, <clears throat> that was probably like. Uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Peter Frampton Comes Alive, mm -hmm. uh, the, the stuff that everybody was buying that was you know, Some of the greats. Top, of the, top of the charts. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember buying uh, uh, Eagles when I was younger. Um, I remember buying uh, 
but the first two, first two on vinyl, I think I bought were Peter Frampton Comes Alive and Dark Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say the music thing. My, my mom used to play piano, so she would sit down at the piano now and then okay. and play. And she played viola and had a lot of music talent. My dad had no music talent. Mm -hmm. um, and then into high school, I was listening to The Police, and uh, that might have been just be a little bit beyond. The Police, and Kansas, and Journey, and Cheap Trick, and Foreigner, uh, Bill Withers, um, Weather Report, Spyro Gyra, nice. uh, The Commodores, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Kansas, um, The Who, yeah. The Kinks, The Stones, The Beatles. What a wonderful time. <laughs> That's great. And you, uh, you had like your own stereo in your room and you were, you were kind of collecting vinyl on your own? I did have a turntable. I can't, I had a mediocre system in, you know, through, through high school. Sure. Um, I, I had some, uh, I had a small collection. Uh, when I, I probably didn't have more than 50 or 100 on vinyl. Yeah. A bunch of, maybe and a, a couple boxes of cassettes. Sure. Um, when I got to high school, I was exposed more to, I started playing, I should say, in fifth grade, I started playing music. Mm -hmm. I learned how to play clarinet poorly. Um, in sixth grade, I uh, started playing saxophone. And I played saxophone through college for fun. But I played in band in uh, middle school and high school. Gotcha. Was your mom performing at all? Or was that just no. kind of a hobby? No, she would just sit there. We had a piano at the house and she would sometimes play. So your introduction to live instruments was through school? You know, I, I said that I actually my mom, my parents forced piano lessons on me for a year or two. Mm -hmm. when I was probably only third grade or so. And I didn't stick. I wasn't, it was a, and I, um, so that was my real first experience with playing music was piano lessons. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until, um, it really wasn't, you know, playing an instrument and practicing it wasn't something I did till middle school. Sure. So uh, you said they forced piano lessons on you when you were a child, wasn't really your choice. Yeah, but uh, when it came time for a saxophone, was your first? Oh, well, the well, next? Yes. Um, in, I, we, my family passed down a, a metal clarinet, a silver okay. clarinet that had been my uncle's. And uh, that was in the closet. My mom said, you can play this. So I played this metal clarinet in mm -hmm. fifth grade. Yeah. And then when I got to sixth, the band director there said, uh, that doesn't sound very good. I have another clarinet. I have another. I have a saxophone you can borrow, or you need to go buy a clarinet. So I borrowed a saxophone, and gotcha. that's when I switched. And it was. Uh, I'm assuming you were getting acclimated to music theory at this time. Um, so I mean, how was the transition? Was it kind of smooth going from the clarinet to the sax? Yeah. 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 Everything was cool. It's pretty straightforward. How did it strike you? How did you feel about it? Because by this time, this is something that you're electing to do on your own, right? I mean, I remember doing what I had to do to practice and be able to play the, play the charts and uh, 
whether it was the uh, orchestra or whether it was the, uh, call it marching band, although I don't recall in the middle, I don't recall doing a lot of marching. Um, we, you know, so I, I did what I had to do to practice. I wasn't sure. like trying to become the best sax player. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, you know, what was your aim at that time? Was it just something to it was, do? It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun being in band. Um, I, I, um, I, I started enjoying playing saxophone more in high school, and I had the fortune, I, I had an interesting background in New Orleans. Um, I went to different schools for third, fourth, fifth grade. Okay. Um, first, second, and third, I was at a public school in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And I went to another school for fourth grade, private. And I went to a public school for fifth, which I despised. But I was in this band with 50 drummers across the back row. Wow. And um, it was just a fifth and sixth grade place. And then I went to Newman. Uh, so I had this, you know, private school, middle school experience with a really, with a good band. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I went to Ben Franklin for, uh, for high school. And I was fortunate to be in a band with Wynton Marsalis, Delphio Marsalis. Yeah. Um, and that's when I began to have more exposure to some other music like jazz. Mm. Um, but I was in like a little jazz band at that in high school. I was in the orchestra at high school. I was in uh, uh, I was in a Loyola music summer music program that uh -huh. did, included pit orchestra, where I also picked up uh, baritone saxophone and tenor saxophone and w played whatever was needed sure. for the for that uh, summer. Um, so I've and and high school band was a big part of my high school experience. It Sounds was a lot like of fun it. and going to football games and uh, playing yeah. on Friday nights and things like that. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I talked to somebody recently and um, by the time he got to high school, uh, he had a lot of musicians in his family and he had picked up uh, you know bass guitar and he was going to start out, uh, I believe, on clarinet um, on his own. And um, by the time he gets to high school, the band instructor knows about him, knows that he has talent um, on more than one instrument, and basically said, this is how it's going to be, and pulled a lot more out of him than he was expecting to give. And one of the requirements for being in uh, the jazz band was that he had to participate in some of these other um, I guess genres or facets of the music program. Uh, when you were in high school, did you have to be in one other thing in order to do, like, let's say, something that you wanted, like jazz band or, or, or another aspect of it, or did you just choose to be in all these different areas? Um, I think I had to be in the uh, orchestra in the, in, okay. the, in the, before I could also participate in, let's say, a jazz ensemble or something like that. Yeah, that was, that was the same situation with him. But it was, um, but I, I remember that just being a lot of uh, fun. And again, when you've got someone like Wynton Marsalis, who was really great then, mm -hmm. um, it, uh, he, was, he was a big 
uh, he's been a big influence in my life. Um, okay. His work ethic and his, and then watching him after he graduated and moved on, and when he went to uh, moved to New York and mm -hmm. started recording albums, and then it was that's been a big influence in, on me. Sure. I didn't go into music. I mean, I wasn't my initially. I, I that's not where I went. But I followed Winton and Branford, and then Terrence, uh, then Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison went yeah. there. And I and I moved to New York City after college, and I would go see all these guys, and then I was watching and I, Harry Connick Jr. Yeah. And I was just, you know and I was accumulating all their music as well and then. Accumulating also on the jazz side, I was accumulating things, all the every the things that are in everybody's jazz catalog, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, and sure. John Coltrane, Love Supreme, and you know, starting with those two and all lots of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and yeah. um, so I, I started expanding my music interest in listening. Did you? Uh, how long did you stick with uh, sax? How long did I stay with you? Well, I was. I played saxophone in college in a fraternity band that played during the breaks of other bands uh -huh. uh, called the Urinals. Beautiful. And uh, <laughs> I kind of put together the band, and then it, the songs we were playing didn't all have saxophone parts. So I also played around on the synthesizer. Okay. And uh, it was just a fun thing. We you know we would play for 15, 20 minutes during a set break and. It, but we would get together and jam and have fun other times and just sure. just play. But we never we never really. The, a group of that band went on and actually got paid to do things. Uh, <laughs> but so it stayed with me through college. Gotcha. But, um, and then I would pick up the saxophone every six months just to make sure I still kind of knew the fingering and sure. Until Katrina and my flat my. Uh, Horn got flooded, and oh, no. I haven't fixed it since, and I've never picked it up since. Yeah. So at your core, you were—I mean, you yourself were a music fan, even though you didn't come from people that were big fans of music. And um, you started to participate in school, and that kind of stuck with you for a while. Um, I think what extenuated it so long was coming up with uh, some of the Marsalis and, and um, you know, seeing them again later on in your life or watching their career, right. I suppose. So, I mean, you, you were still, you know, that, that music fan was always inside of you, you know, yeah. and you participated for a while. Absolutely. That's kind of cool. Um, it's interesting to me that, um, I, I guess not so much, you moved here when you were really young and you stayed here um, all your life with those few exceptions. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting to me that uh, that, that New Orleans, uh, that New Orleans sound and New Orleans musicians kind of stuck with you even though when, when you were away, you know, you were still following specific guys' careers and such, you know. Right, and I should say, like, when I was when I was in high school, I was going to see The Cold mm, yeah. a, a lot. I went to see The Noble Brothers a lot. Um, I. But then I start trying to. Uh, uh, I would say it was a James Rivers mm -hmm. at Tyler's. Uh, there was, there were uh, Astral Project. Um, these were, these were bands I was I would check out in high school. I can't remember everybody that I would go. I mean, I, I was a little older. Mm -hmm. You know, I got I turned eighteen and during my senior year, so I was able to get into a lot of places. Um, and I, um, 
but I, I sort of remember the other bands that I saw, and I, and I know I saw Sounds like a ton. <laughs> and, I, but, and I also attended jazz festival, at least for a few of those years. Uh-huh. I think I was probably starting on jazz fest when I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. Um, the, um, those, ex- that, the, the, the bands that I, those, those bands though, I, when, when I went away to college, I went to the University of Texas, mm-hmm. and I would see the Neville Brothers when they came through. Sure. And um, I would, oh, back, oh, and back in college, I would see Stevie Ray Vaughan, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a lot. Um, but yeah, I, the, the experience through, my, through moving to New York after college, I, had, I got an MBA from the University of Texas, moved to New York City and worked in consulting, in business consulting. Yeah, I was going to ask what you were doing uh, at this time. Yeah, my, my interest when I got into college, really, and from the time I was 18, I knew I wanted to do something in business or finance. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a finance undergrad and a finance MBA. And I ended up going to work for Arthur Anderson Consulting Division, mm-hmm. putting in big computer systems. So for... The first system we put in was in New Jersey, the New Jersey Department of Labor. So we put uh, this, they had a 75 year old, so they had been doing the same thing for 75 years. Wow. And we installed their first computer system mm-hmm. to manage cases as they came through for workers comp and for uh, at the New Jersey Department of Labor. I also, while I was in those, doing those, I had 16 clients in three and a half years based out of New York, but mostly working elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Georgia Department of Labor. While I was in Atlanta, I happened to be in the same hotel for three weeks with uh, the cast of School Days. Oh, yeah. School Days. Yeah. So, yeah, I pull up to the place, and, there, and there's all these guys with shaved heads, and uh, they were shooting. So I, and I had been friends with Brantford. Brantford Marsalis was in the, in the movie. So yeah. for three weeks, I was going to work and doing my work with, uh, with Anderson, and then um, going to watch the movie set. And, uh, and spending time with them. Um, and then there was another time where I uh, was, I think it was while I was assigned to Pac Bell out in California, we were putting in their system for 900 and 976 phone call billing. Uh-huh. Uh, they nicknamed us the, uh, I don't even want to say it. Let's just say all the calls that you used to make on 900 yeah. that the fishing report or the, you know, everything always starts with porn. So, <laughs> you know, but we, we put those first systems in for Pac Bell. Yeah. So there, that was, you know, we would, I was, uh, but when I came back to the New York office, I happened one day to uh, go get lunch with Winton and a junior in high school, Jeremy Davenport was hanging out with Winton that week. Yeah. Or that weekend. And he was trying to figure out what to do with his life, Jeremy was. And Winton was uh, convinced him that he should go to UNO and study with Ellis Marsalis. Nice. And uh, so someone like Jeremy, who ended up being on our record label, yeah, has actually been in my life as a friend because I, we had that one lunch. And then when he moved to New Orleans, I would go see him play. And then sure. he was in Harry Connick Jr.'s big band. And, yeah. You know, so. There's just a lot of those kind of connections. A lot, I was talking about the influence that Winton had, and it was like, 
I met Wes Anderson through him, and I met Victor Goins through the Loyola Summer Music Program. Victor plays with Winton's band. Victor's mm -hmm. now a artistic director, I believe, at uh, University of Michigan, maybe. He was at, but he's in the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. There's just lots of connections through that family. Sure. Um, and I think I kind of went sidetracked there, but I was in. So back to the what I did. I was, you know, not doing music. I was doing um, computer cons uh, business consulting on it with a heavy dose of computers. Sure. And learning how to program in Co uh, the first thing I did for the Anderson was learned how to program in COBOL. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's because I think this has happened to a lot of people, to be honest, to some degree or another. Um, that we have some sort of uh, personal connection to um, some of the music that we like to go see, especially if it's local, because um, you know bands will hang around the bar after they finish their set, and somebody else is up, and you get to maybe you get five minutes with the drummer, or you know ten minutes with the guitarist, and you get to talk to them for a minute. And you kind of like who they are, you know, and it forms some sort of personal significance in your life, and um, that just seemed to happen many times over for you so i'm sure it wasn't going anywhere it just always stuck with you yes at, at some certain point though you somehow find yourself um in the business side of music or i mean you have some sort of change in your life like what happens to make you consider yeah so i've so i'm with anderson Anderson, what, it was Arthur Anderson, and while I was there, it became Anderson Consulting, one of the divisions of the company. That company is no longer, Anderson Consulting is now called Accenture. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of the company is defunct because of uh, activities that they were do, doing improperly. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the big, at the time, it was one of the big six, big eight, big six accounting firms. The accounting portion of that company no longer exists gotcha. because of improprieties. The consulting division branched off and became Accenture. I was about to get assigned to either the New Zealand Stock Exchange, the German Stock Exchange, or um, one other big project that was gearing up. And I was sitting in the New York office, and my dad gave me a call and said that there was a new chemical formulation for a company that he founded. He had a partner in St. Louis and a and he worked in New Orleans. Um, they were 50-50 owners of this company, and they invited me and his partner's son to join the company. Mm -hmm. So I happened to be in this, moment, in this moment in my life where I was sitting in the New York office waiting, to, waiting for the, uh, Anderson to gear up enough people, accumulate enough people, so that they could start a new project. And my dad happened to call me during that time and said, we could use your business experience, your master's, what you've learned. So I chose to, um, I'm trying to recall, let's see. So I had, was recently married at that point. I was gonna ask, how, how old are you at this time? Um, I was, uh, that was in <clears throat> 1989. So I, had, I got married in 88 to my late wife. Um, that was, so I was uh, 26 years old. Okay. And I moved to New Orleans. Um, she, my, my late wife, happened to be from New Orleans. Okay. And was living in New York City. 
and happened to live in the same building in New okay. York City. And we went, and I was, I, I mentioned I had spent most of my time working in, a lot of my time, a year and a half of the three and a half years I was in New Jersey with different clients. So my weekends were like, come to New York and chill and go hear music, go to see Art Blakey or, or Winton or whoever. And um, so we ended up uh, meeting and, and getting married eventually about not too long, didn't take long. But because I, mar because I met and was, had married a New Orleans girl, mm -hmm. the conversation of, hey, you want to move to New Orleans? worked out for her. She's, she had grandparents here and my parents were here. We moved to New Orleans. Your father's business was uh, initiating this. Y'all hadn't discussed that before, that time? We hadn't really ever discussed my joining him in, in the business. Or, or I, moving. Until, or moving to gotcha. New Orleans. I just, it just happened to be that I was sitting in New York waiting. Wow. Um, so that summer, uh, sometime July 1989, I think we started July, I think I came in on July 4th weekend and, we, and I started working. And so did my dad's partner's son, same time. The two of us, two and two in the different offices, 50-50 mm -hmm. corporation. Um, so I came to work and um, we started having a family. And the first of our kids was born in 90, and then 92, and then 94. Um, and from 1989 to 1997, I worked on uh, what's, what's now maybe still called the Sulfatreat Company. Uh, Sulfatreat was a chemical that purified, that was natural gas passed through the chemical. And with the hydrogen sulfide is a contaminant, deadly poisonous gas, that is uh, naturally found in a lot of natural gas that's produced. Yeah. Um, once, the, once the 90s rolled around, natural gas prices were high enough that treating it and using it for fuel became sour gas, what's called sour gas containing hydrogen sulfide. It became uh, economical to treat it and use it. Previous to that, it would just get probably just get flared. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I was the technical services manager. I was working with our chemists and fit to model the performance of the chemical, figure out what size vessels the chemical needed to be in, what the, how high, tall they needed to be, how, how wide they needed to be so that the gas contacted the chemical for the right amount of time mm -hmm. to bring the, the percentage of the hydrogen sulfide down to an acceptable level so that it wasn't corrosive and could be used. There's other other processes in natural gas treating that you have to remove water, you have to remove carbon, di carbon dioxide. So when you see these gas plants, they've got all these different pressure vessels. Sure. That's what all that's about. So we would model all that stuff and tell them where they needed to go. That's the kind of work I was doing for nine years. What a complete 180 from what you were doing yeah. previously. Yeah. And I was traveling to places like Venezuela and Mexico City. Wow. East Texas, West Texas, Bakersfield, California, Erie, Pennsylvania, um, wherever. And then I actually started looking at things like wastewater treatment plants and chicken farms and and uh, livestock, wherever there was uh, uh, 
landfill gas and wherever there was lots of chicken poop. Hmm. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So we were uh, looking at lots of different ways to use this chemical, a proprietary and patented chemical. Yeah. Um, but during those nine years, I also, my, my father and I began to fight quite a bit with our partners. And it was nine years of, uh, eight, eight out of the nine years, there was a lot of litigation between us. Oh, wow. And although there was a finally a payday and we sold the company, um, we also, fortunately, we, there was a good balance between the two families, actually, as looking back in hindsight, it was painful at the moment. But my father and I were not independently wealthy. They were. They wanted to build plant property equipment, put all the money back into the business. Mm-hmm. My father and I needed some income. There was just, you know, it was just the de- things you deal with with partners. Sure. And every chance I've had to talk to high schoolers or college students or be a mentor, I've been a mentor at Loyola University um, for entering freshmen. Um, I say, when you go into business, if you don't need a business partner, don't have a business partner. Right. And if you do have a business partner, and this goes for today with bands and everything else, if you, ha- if you need a business partner, and you might need it if you're putting together a band, you need to have an arrangement for how are you going to separate things when you are done. Um, in my father and I, our case, we um, spent a lot of money on lawyers, and it was painful. Um, but that, um, that experience throughout all of that made me realize when I got done that I wanted to find something that was a lot more fun to do. Sure. Um, so toward the end, my, we felt for the last few years like we were six months away from selling the company. And it took a while. We were, it seemed like we were always six months away. And so eventually I just said, you know, I started talking to, I was at the, uh, uh, I started having conversations that went back to, um, okay, so it's hard to explain. My late brother, my little brother, uh, Will, was the conference manager for the Cutting Edge Music Business Conference, okay. which has been around for over 25 years. Yeah. Um, they, uh, he was the manage, conference manager for the first four. He invited me because of my, all these contacts I had as a music fan, and I'm still working in the energy business at the time, but he invited me to put together the jazz showcase because they were covering lots of genres, but they sure. had showcases all around New Orleans. And he asked me to put together the jazz showcase, I believe in 1990, no, yeah, 19, 1996 and 97, I believe. Okay. Um, so I jumped on those contacts that I had. I invited uh, Delphio Marsalis and uh, Jeremy Davenport and Wes Anderson and mm-hmm. Victor Goins and um, uh, some several other, uh, well, Michael Ray was part of one of those. So at, just for fun, I was I put together these showcases and kind of helped produce these shows 
two different two different years. Yeah. One show each conference, mm. and got a little taste of that. But one of the guys I invited for one of those shows was Kermit Ruffins. Okay. And uh, Kermit's manager at the time, who continued to be his manager for over 20 years, Tom Thompson, we started having conversations. And I was talking to him about how I wasn't really that happy with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And that one day I, I was six months away from right. selling my company. And um, that I wanted to find something different to do. And I thought I might want to be a manager or an agent of artists. And um, so we started having conversations. And over that next year, Tom contacted me about investing. He wanted me to invest $5,000 in a Kermit Ruffin's live recording. So rather than just, and I think I might have made another investment in music, in someone else's music recording, Mm-hmm. completely separate from all of this uh, just prior to that. It was a, a, a boys to men kind of band. And I don't remember their name. But I, the conversations with Tom evolved into let's start a record label, which we did. A night, it was, we started it in September 1997. Yeah. And um, it was the, uh, it was just set up to record Kermit Ruffins. And we did a record live at Tipitina's. The working title was Swinging Live. It was recorded on November 7th, November 14th, 1997 uh-huh. uh, at Tipitina's in front of a packed house. Um, and we jumped into the music business, uh, the, the two of us. Um, he, had, I mean, he had been in the music business. He was managing and, and booking Kermit. Okay. Uh, he, and before that, he had managed and booked Tab Benoit. Okay. So he had experience in this. The record label side, we didn't. And I had none. Um, so we recorded that in November. We released that album in February 1998. On your label. On the label, on Basin which we had... You know, we set up the, all, everything properly. Had the, I think we probably had the website, even if that was websites back then. Um, but it was a one-page one website if we sure. had one. But, uh, yeah, so we started the label. And we, in February 98, right around Mardi Gras time, we released what we changed to the Barbecue Swingers Live title. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, but I was still working in the energy company full-time this was and the record label was just nights and weekends and we put I would go out on the weekends and put flyers on car windows and posters on telephone poles and sit outside Tepatina's every weekend night and put flyers out on the cars in the parking lot at the across Caddy Corner from there and sure up and down streets up and down the streets by the Maple Leaf you know we just Lots, as much as I could work nights and weekends to get that thing going. And um, so we released that in February. On March the 7th, 1998, I got a call from, uh, well, I was, that day, I was making flyers at Kinko's for, some, for an upcoming 
show. And I ran into Matt Dillon, not the actor, but a guy who was Wynton Marsalis' tour manager. Okay. And a drummer. And Matt had a, would put together a band now and then as a leader. And he had a show that night at the Funky Butt, the defunct Funky Butt Jazz mm-hmm. Club on Rampart Street. And Matt, we traded flyers. He, he, had, he had just made a, picked up some flyers for his show that night. And he said, come see me tonight. I said, I'll be there. 12.30 in the morning, I'm, follow, I'm sound asleep. It's pouring down rain. And I, decide, and I, I wake up and I said, oh, I, wanna, I, said, I told Matt I would go see his show. So I told my late wife, I got to go to the Funky Butt. Caught his show. And at that show, I run into Irvin Mayfield, nice. who's sitting in on trumpet. And her, Irvin was 21 years old at the time. And I had just read these two stories about him, uh, one in Gambit and one in Offbeat, mm-hmm. about a show that he and Jason Marsalis <clears throat> and Bill Summers, uh, the famous Bill Summers from Summers Heat and the Headhunters, mm-hmm. and Jason Marsalis, who I've known since he was three years old. And I, I didn't really know Irvin that well. I, didn't, I had only met him a time or two. But we ended up uh, talking at the, end of the, at the end of the night. And I had read these articles about this band that he had put together with those guys that performed at Snug Harbor and at the Funky Butt and had a show coming up that later that week at, at House of Blues. Yeah. And it was about, it talked about how great they were and how they, Bill Summers had thrown uh, shake array and percussion instruments to members of the crowd at Snug Harper and had people on their feet. And um, so we talked about that for a second. And it, it also mentioned in the article that they were going to have a record out. Uh, they hoped to have a record out in time for Jazz Fest. So Irvin said, I hear you're doing well with Kermit's record. Are you interested in helping us put this out? So I said, well, we could. Let's talk. I'll talk to Tom in the morning. So, but we'd have to do a deal really quick if you wanted out for Jazz Fest. This is March seventh. Sure. So, we signed a deal a, t- a couple of days, a few days, four days later. We were in, the, and then they had their show at the at uh, the House of Blues. But was that like the the House of Blues show? Was that like the release party? No, or was no, not, they, still that was, wasn't that out. was on the that was. That was something that that was that same week. That was, I think, March March twelfth. Gotcha. I was. This is March the seventh. That show was on March twelfth. Yeah. So we signed a deal and then immediately went out and helped them promote that show March twelfth at the House of Blues. And then they went in the studio for two weeks, which was Bill Summers' home studio. Gotcha. They recorded the rhythm section. The rhythm section went on, I think, to the Dominican Republic for a jazz festival. Wow. Um, and then Bill did his magic on the record, invited people like Cyril Neville in and, and uh, uh, Manny Landers and uh, Philip Manuel and wow, yeah. uh, just added layers of percussion and just and made it out a beautiful album. That album um, was, it, because we, weren't, we didn't really have our stuff together that first year, that album went on a year later to be the Billboard Latin Jazz Album of the Year. Wow. Um, but at the Jazz Fest the next month, Los Hombres Calientes, which mm-hmm. was the band they put together, 
and Kermit Ruffins were the top two selling albums at the Jazz Fest. Los Hombres' album actually was out in time for French Quarter Fest, and we sold a cr crazy numbers of, out of uh, CDs. Those two albums also were on cassette, and they were the only two things I've ever put on cassette. Yeah. And we still have about 490 out of the 500 copies we made of each of them. <laughs> so It was a changing time. <laughs> that was, uh, so that, that year also happened to be the peak in CD sales. Yeah. Um, maybe 2000 was the peak, but 98, 99, 2000, peak yeah. sales of CDs. So, um, so that was our start. So here we are, it's, it's, uh, now it's, we're into April 98. We've got two records that are doing really well. And I decided I would quit my energy company and just wait for the sale, yeah. but devote full time to the record label. But I also bought Tom out of the company at that time. Uh -huh. And uh, he kept, you know, we, we continue to work closely together, but he was Kermit's manager and agent. And other, he's, he managed other artists over the years as well. Um, so we've could, we continued to work together, but I took the label on my own. Gotcha. Um, and at that time, it was just really me and my late wife. And then I brought a, a college intern on and um, worked that way all the way until November 2000. Yeah. And I can continue on this. Sure. Well, this. I want to go back a little bit, if I can. Um, Back to before uh, the the label actually came to fruition. Uh, you're in New York, and you you said that they were putting together teams to either put you on uh, the the German stock exchange or uh, New Zealand. What was that going to do? Was did that mean you were going to be leaving? I would have probably been assigned for two years. So you would have left the country for two right. years. Right. That was coming. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I was excited about those opportunities. They were great. They were to me, especially as someone with fi in a finance background. Yeah. You know, and I had just done. Also, I had just spent six months on a client, um, working for like ten different clients that mm -hmm. included Solomon Brothers, Goldman Sachs, Drexel oh. Burnham Lambert, wow. Amerabank, First Boston, um, putting together, doing. Assisting the audit side of the business uh -huh. by tweaking code and analyzing portfolios of mortgage-backed securities. Gotcha. And so all of the, uh, you've, if you've, you've, I, that was the very beginning of the banks and the, what ultimately led to some problems, mm -hmm. um, which uh, Michael Lewis, who was a, uh, has put together some great books and films, mm -hmm. um, describes. And I now, right this moment, my, I'm fuzzy on the name of the, the, the movie that, and book that he wrote about this, but the whole greed and mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. And, uh, but that was the beginning of that. So from that standpoint, I was excited about, I had, and, and like I said, I was doing all this work these 18-hour these days, basically putting together the prospectuses for these deals. Um, you know, they would issue $50 million, $100 million worth of paper, mm -hmm. which was buying into um, a, a security that was backed by mortgages. So 
Um, so to, the idea of going to the stock exchanges and putting, installing a system for one of those two, and I don't remember the third client potentially that I would have been assigned to. It was just going to be like as the right staffing came free from other jobs. But sure. it's a major deal when you're trying to accumulate. This would have, either one of these jobs would have been 100 or 200 people. And what's the, what's the draw for you? Is it the size of the project or the, the clients themselves, their significance? Well, at that point, it was, uh, I was a senior. So I was managing others with their, with basically managing people who were writing code. Gotcha. But the process was understanding all of the workflow. Sure. And flowcharts and design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beginning by starting out, what is it you do? You know, the first client I ever had was one where they had been, like I said, they had been doing the same thing for 75 years and they're like, check comes, an envelope comes in and it's got a, a motion or an answer or a, and it's got a check attached to it and one person slices it open sure. and passes it to the next person. That person takes it out, staples the check and the stuff together, passes it on, yeah. the check flows around the room for six weeks, mm -hmm. and then it gets deposited. You know, one of the very first things we did was like, the check needs to come off, and you need to capture that information, and then get the check into the bank. And we saved, you know, we, we the state of New Jersey ended up earning an additional $300,000 a year in interest or something like that. Wow. Because of getting the checks deposited six weeks earlier than typical. You know, it's just <laughs> that crazy. kind of process and that kind of, so same things would happen, you know, it was back in, the, in those days, it was uh, the systems, the computer systems were made, men, they weren't not completely novel, yeah. but there were majors. It was a major improvement over what was there before. Sure. I mean, if you just look at the, I mean, now I probably could do what else on my iPhone was. Yeah, you know, what, but at what that they were time, doing back then. yeah, it was it was uh, revolutionary, I'm sure. So if if that was still appealing to you, um, even the the thought of relocation and such, um, what made you agree to just go in the opposite direction? Because it, was it really was an yeah. opposite direction. It, it was no, it was still using all. It was still using my finance, my business, my my. It was using my master's. Okay. Degree, my interest in business. Yeah. My interest in um, um, marketing and sales and yeah, and it was all those things still. Gotcha, and I, I guess um, throughout the course of that part of your life in business with your father, the turnoff was the the um, friction between partners. Yeah, my and it just made you kind of grasp at something that was a little less heady, I suppose. Yeah, it's just like the, what we did day to day. Like I said, we, we eventually grew the company and sold it. And the balance of my dad and I, might, we might have sold it years earlier mm -hmm. and at a lo much lower price. Gotcha. And the balance between the families, it, looking back, seems like it, was, it, it helped us all maximize the situation ultimately. Yeah. But I, um, I was, had a very good working relationship with my dad. It, it was just the two, the part, the, sure. the two cities. We just had our problems. Yeah. Um, and significant problems. It's yeah. just not, not, not pleasant. Um, and I was, um, but I was, I was 
not completely my own boss in that situation, mm -hmm. but I dictated most of what I was going to do on a particular day. Yeah. And if, uh, if I needed to go check on a facility in California that, or sell some, you know, or sell a new project, you know, I was selling projects. I was selling, you know, telling, explaining to a gas plant how the gas that they were flaring could be treated economically and consumed instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, and then uh, at the, the termination out of the sale of that, um, you find yourself in business, so to speak, I guess, making, making an investment in a business idea with uh, Kermit Ruffin's manager. Um, what was, I guess, generally speaking, what was the, the structure of that? Were you investing in his first album or were you investing in your own label? Or did, did at the point that you were putting money into the, the Kermit Ruffin's uh, and the Barbecue Swingers album, um, did you see that as an investment in Kermit Ruffin's or Basin Street Records? That was, well, the initial conversation was, can we borrow $5,000 okay. to make a record? But rather than just give them $5,000, we started a label. The label, initially, the was just a vehicle for releasing Kermit's album. Okay. And then... Los Hombres just happened to come about because I decided to get up at 1230 in the morning was pouring. Right. That we weren't looking for any other projects at that moment. Um, I, I feel like uh, I still even then was not trying to build a label. I, wasn't, I was just trying to help musicians mm -hmm. uh, achieve a goal and use those things that I like to do, like the sales and marketing and Sure. And hard work to help them and do do things that they aren't necessarily doing. They they put their effort into their practice and their craft and their and uh, and they are generally speaking looking for that extra help. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say today I still yeah I'm always I want to develop the brand I want to develop Basin Street. But even today twenty almost twenty six years later I still am looking for the artist who wants our help to make their lives easier mm -hmm. and hopefully we help them put additional money in their pocket so um, basically basically it was uh it was you structuring your next move in with business sense yes. and it just sort of turned into a label yes but it all but you know we we had to start a label because i mean the riaa are yeah, RIAA requires a label be on a CD on packaging and all these kinds of things. So we had to start a label. We yeah. we, we came up, we came, Tom and I came up with Basin Street Records. Uh, you know, formed the LLC, filed with Secretary of State. All you know, did the things we needed to do. Start open a bank account, but um, and I and I think probably the the record probably did cost about five thousand dollars to make. Mm -hmm. um, it was recorded live. Um, today, I mean, if you looked at the advertising expenses and for and, dist and distribution and so forth for that particular album, it's really hefty. Um, you know, it's you 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 sell and you put more money in 
you sell it and you put more money and you, know, yeah. you keep on going and yeah. you know you tour support and you know in those early days we were you know there was assistance to buy airfares to go to a festival and things like that that mm. we would pay for um, but we created the uh, like I said we 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 created the vehicle we created the label as opposed to just making lending them money Sure. Lending current money, we created a label, and we um, have provided our artists with fifty percent of the profits. All of our artists make fifty percent of the profits. Just that's just the formula that we've used. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of a partnership with everybody. Sure. Um, that we you know we spend what we spend, and we earn what we earn, and whatever's left we split up. Sure. Um, that's, but there hasn't been, an, there's not been an artist that I've reached, I have not searched out for anybody. Mm -hmm. It's never worked out that way. So we have 16, I believe 16 artists now, and they've, there's never been one that I've said, please sign. Sure. It doesn't work. Yeah, that's that a beautiful way. thing. Waking up at 1230 to go see a show and then it happening to, I mean, turn into, uh, you know, an, uh, another yeah. artist on your label is a beautiful thing. And, um. I mean, the, the more the more natural or, or organic, however you want to put it, um, the more it happens like that, the better it feels for all parties involved. You know. Yeah, I think so, and it's, and I, you know, I, t I tell everybody, everybody who's ever, I, we've had we've had artists that have come to us, and I want to talk I want to talk more about the absolutely the artists that have that we have signed. Yeah. But we've had artists that come to us. It's like talk to everybody else, <laughs> talk talk to everybody on the label, and. Because we don't have to do, we don't have to work together. You know, talk to everybody and see what they tell you about it. Yeah. And is it going to be, and figure out if it's going to be a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, I, I we we started to, we started to roll with when when Los Orbitz got busy and Kermit was oh, Kermit. By, by the way. When I we signed Kermit, Kermit. In we signed him in November at the Offbeat Best of the Beat Awards. He won Entertainer of the Year. Mm -hmm. That he wasn't a secret, and he uh, and he really helped us, you know, help put us on the map mm -hmm. by his um, by his willingness to and, and Tom helped us. You know, get going because it was Tom that's like said, "Can you loan us some money?" Mm -hmm. um, but he had just gotten out of his deal with Justice Records. He had put out three records with Justice Records in out of Houston, um, and they were looking for an opportunity to put some, put out something. So I got started that way and just worked hard, really worked hard, and I get up. I still get up every morning with an eye that I want to help put more money in our artists' pockets. It is more difficult today than it was back then. Um, it's a lot more difficult. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, everybody. Normally in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today I've got a new band by the name of Deep Sleep Atlantic. It's an alternative rock and melodic pop rock duo 
comprised of Travis Mark and Daniel Perez. I had the opportunity to interview Travis, and it was a really interesting episode. He's an incredibly talented artist, and he shared with us his experiences getting signed, landing on the charts, and living on several continents. You can catch that episode on our podcast catalog, and honestly, I can't recommend it enough. But anyway, back to the plug. So these two guys meet while doing studio sessions and hit it off. Both of them played just about every instrument out there, and both were looking for the next big project. After Travis let Daniel hear some of his work, they began what became a breath of fresh air for Louisiana's music scene, Deep Sleep Atlantic. Now their debut album, Prelude, just dropped June 9th, and it definitely breaks the mold when it comes to anything coming out of our great state. You can find their new album on all major streaming platforms. They're also on Facebook and Instagram by the band name, and on Twitter they are Deep Sleep ATLC. And you should definitely check out their YouTube channel, guys, because they've released new music videos with each of their three recent singles. So once again, that's Deep Sleep Atlantic. And here's a recent single called Bipolar Tendencies. Check it out, y'all. Now back to our show. So going back to getting the, those first two artists, we've, we're working with at that point. We've got Jason Marsalis, Bill Summers, and Irvin Mayfield as co-leaders of that band. Later that year, Jason decided to do an album on his own, and I, and I mentioned Jason Marsalis. He was the youngest member of the Marsalis family. His brothers at the time would have probably said that he was the most gifted. He. I've known him since he was three years old. Mm-hmm. When I would go to the Marsalis' house with Delphio after school, um, and he was letting me listen to uh, cassettes of Winton's first albums before they would come out. Yeah. You know, and I think I first saw Jason when he was eight years old at Jazz Fest, playing with his dad. So that's one. That so he becomes our third artist. Irvin Mayfield starts recording albums on his own with a quintet. Um, Delphio produced Irvin's first record. Okay. That comes out in uh, in like uh, 1999, uh, mm-hmm. early 99, I guess. Um, and then we signed Dr. Michael White. And Michael White was uh, an added in 2000 because Jerry Brock at Louisiana, one of the co-owners of Louisiana Music Factory at the time yeah. and had also started WWOZ Radio yep. and um, Jerry was like and Barry Smith who's still there they were like you really should sign Michael White um, we would sell a thousand copies right here in the store so that was one that, and again, I knew Michael of him as a music fan. Okay. And, um, but didn't know him personally. And so Jerry made that introduction. And Jerry also produced that album for us. 
Michael's put eight, eight albums on our label. Wow. Everyone has made profits. Everyone is amazing. And, um, and he's just a pleasure to work with. Just a, a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. And um, so that first record, A Song for George Lewis, um, is probably still his, that or Jazz from the Soul, his second record, are probably his top sellers for us yeah. um, of, of the Michael White albums. Um, but Michael right now has like 300 songs he's ready to record. Jeez. And I just need to find the money and the ability it's to do so. a lot to keep so. up with. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, wanna, I want to get that music on, um, on whatever medium it becomes available. Sure. I don't know how we're going to release music these days. It's, but it's tricky. But it's, um, but, but Michael, so Michael comes along and we've released his record in 2000. And then I'm trying to remember the whole time frame, but at the end of 2000, my family's in a car accident. My wife dies at the scene, basically in the hospital. Um, I've got three little children yeah. to raise and uh, who are six, eight and 10 years old. And, and at that time, like I said, I think we were still just operating my late wife and I and an intern. Um, but my brother, who I had mentioned, my late brother, who I mentioned had also been the one who got me into the music, producing concerts. From Cutting Edge. At the Cutting Edge. He left what he was doing, and, or added, added to what he was doing, mm -hmm. and he became the operations director for the company and basically did <clears throat> pick things up. We never missed a beat when my wife died. Um, Los Hombres Calientes was scheduled. My wife died in, in November 2000. Los Hombres Calientes was scheduled to do their, oh, we had released an album by them in 2000 as well. They were scheduled to go record their third album in six countries. Wow. And, um, and they asked whether- What was the first in 98? First record was released in April '98. We released, uh, oh, we released their second album in '99. Right, right. Uh, volume two um, was in '99, and then we were scheduled, We were going to, and I said, and they said, should we still do this? And I think they were leaving right about that time, like December, to go record. And I said, yeah, go. I was supposed to go with them, but I, I didn't gotcha. do that. But, yeah. um, so they went and recorded that album, Volume 3. It was released in 2001. It got a Grammy nomination in 2002. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I can still kind of remember breaking down and crying for that. Yeah. You know, it brings tears to my eyes now. Uh, that was recorded like, you know, just, we just, we, it was perseverance. We just kept going. And, um, they, that record, um, I think there were 50 people on it. It was recorded in Brazil and Haiti and Cuba and Dominican Republic and uh, um, 
quite an undertaking. And yeah. at that time, you had like Buena Vista Social Club and all this that was also making records that in that vein. Um, <clears throat> the uh, that so that's November two thousand. Then my brother comes into the business, and then from the next several years, we start to grow the company. Um, we add we had a an assistant. We had a full-time graphic designer. We had a radio promoter part-time. We had a, a sponsorships person. Mm -hmm. um, we really started spending a lot of money. And um, bus billboards, billboards on Canal Street, uh, tour bus support, um, lots, of, lots of money being spent. And we, we added, over those years, we added John Cleary and who, again, huge fan. Mm -hmm. I was a huge fan. Um, the guys at Superfly, who were also managing Galactic, mm -hmm. and had just started Bonnaroo, had asked me if I wanted to manage John at one point. And I said, I don't, I'm not really into, I, I help artists manage themselves if they're on the label but I really don't want to pick up management clients. Hmm. So we didn't do that, but eventually John came on on the label and I helped him manage himself for a brief time and then he got into good hands with management and booking. Um, one of the things about the label I'll say is that I always owned all the masters. And, um, and at that time, um, was, was still owning all these masters. So we added John Cleary, added Henry Butler, Henry was somebody I used to go see all the time, and would, he would always show up 30 minutes late, hour late. I recall that. Um, but I, would, I was seeing him you know, back when my wife was living mm -hmm. um, with her. Um, so we added, we added Teresa Anderson um, during the 2000, after, after my brother came into the company. We added uh, Teresa Anderson to the company. We added, um, I think that was that. And we, and we continued to release albums. We, by 2005, we released, I think we had released five albums by Irvin, six albums, seven albums by wow. Irvin. Yeah. Uh, we had released uh, six or seven albums by, about, I think we released five albums by Kermit, five or six by Irvin. Five by Los Hombres Calientes. Yeah. A few by Jason Marcellus. Were those all the, the, the Los Hombres, were those always uh, recorded elsewhere? Los Hombres was recorded. Because I mean, uh, of the Latin influence? Volumes three and f five had a lot of artists from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, Volumes one, two, and four were recorded mostly in New Orleans. I got you. Okay. There might have been a track or two that came in from elsewhere. You know, that but we not but we didn't go on location to record. Gotcha. And a lot of the process of recording those albums was taking small recording rigs and recording elements of sure. music that were developed into a full-fledged song. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And we've got some great video. There's a Love Song Place Calientes live from the House of Blues. It's got behind the scenes video of, um, of those recording sessions. Mm-hmm. A steel band, uh, steel pan drum band um, in, uh, I guess that must have been in Haiti. Um, Bill playing uh, Bata in Cuba yeah. with uh, masters and uh, that kind of el- those elements being developed into it so um, so now we've we've got a good number of artists and I might have left somebody off there 2005 rolls around we've just released well, in 2004 we released six albums in one day April 2004 we released Henry Butler a John Cleary a Teresa Anderson a Los Hombres Calientes DVD um, a uh, soundtrack for a TV movie called Infidelity, mm-hmm. which incorporated all of our artists. Um, uh, almost all of our artists were either in the film or we added them to the soundtrack. A Lifetime TV movie. Um, and I'm missing one album, one art, one of those six. So we released six in one day in April 2004. 2005, we released three in time for Jazz Fest. Uh, Kermit Ruffin's Throwback with the Rebirth Brass Band. Um, an album by Irvin, and a third that I'm not remembering right this second, and then Katrina. Yeah. And this <clears throat> this house that you're looking at in this background has got five feet of water. My office space on Canal Street has a foot and a half of water. Wow. I had six full-time employees at that by that time, six full-time. Um, everybody goes their own ways. The artists are all separated. Uh, and some are in Houston, some are in Atlanta. Jeez, I don't know. We never stopped again. Um, well, it I, intensified. <laughs> we, it just it, intensified. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting, we, I never stopped. It was like I packed up, I evacuated. I evacu- I, uh, we have a distributor that distributes our music world uh, throughout the U.S. I have other distributors that were distributing our music worldwide. Mm-hmm. They had CDs on hand. We had our, our, our like I said, our, we had a, we, I had a 3,000 square foot office space on Canal Street, six full-time employees, a good amount of inventory in there. Most of the stuff that was on the lower shelves got wiped out, but sure. we had other shelves. We were able to get in, salvage a lot of that. Um, not, not so much salvage. I mean, the, we didn't have to salvage. They got in and took it off the shelves and moved Separate, it. Yeah. Um, kept it safe. So I had some inventory to sell. Um, and, but I lost my staff. They all went their separate ways. Yeah. My brother, who had been my operations director, all, had also reduced his hours in the months preceding that. He was only working for, for us for about 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. He had got he he and the guys at the Blue Nile had developed a pizza place above the Blue Nile, oh. and he was devoting a lot of his efforts to that. So when Katrina came, it was like I don't have the ability to keep anybody. Yeah, and I had to let everybody go, and I was back to running the company the way I had in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, except that um, I was fortunate. I had 
met my wife, mm -hmm. my current wife, Kara, who was in my life all of 2005. And we met on New Year's Eve, 2004-05, at the House of Blues. I went out selling John Cleary merchandise and CDs at, in the parish at the House of Blues. She went out that night with a girlfriend and they came up to me. Both of them had met me in the past. Um, and from that night on, I was never apart from, well, there were four nights, I think, before we went to the Sugar Bowl together. Um, but we've been together since. Fortunately, her uptown house did not flood, and I had a place to go back to. Hmm. And I made 29 trips back and forth between Austin and New Orleans. I also was fortunate that my parents, who also lost their home, moved to Austin. And, and the reason we moved to Austin was because I had gone to school there. Right. And I thought it was a good spot to go <clears throat> and take my family. But I was also in this new relationship with my wife and wanted to be able to go back and forth. And thinking about the cities to the east, the bridge had been blown out. Yeah. Coming back from the east. So I thought about Austin. So I kept, like I said, I kept things going. Our website was still processing orders. Like I, I think maybe there was a few days where I wasn't able to get to a post office. But whether I was in Memphis on it, evacuating St. Louis, where I went to a wedding the week after Katrina, or in Austin when I got there after that wedding weekend, and then enrolled my kids in school that Monday. I mean, never stopped moving, never stopped the label. Yeah. And, um, but did have to figure out what, what to do next. But my, but my wife, Kara, was, um, allowed me to go back and forth. It allowed me to have a place to stay when I got here. You know, yeah. not, not a lot of people had that. And then I had my parents who had, because their house was also destroyed, and they were, uh, I was thankful that they allowed us to live with them. I was able to like, leave my three little kids yeah. as a single father with them for two, three days at a time, come to New Orleans, wow. work on the label, work on my house. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things. I was fortunate I snuck into New Orleans and was able to gut the house sooner than most people. I didn't, so the mold didn't go up into the second floor. It right. was confined to the first. Um, I, you know, navigating the process for uh, getting, getting it back into shape so that at the end of that school year, my kids were able to come back to New Orleans and start a school year the next year Amazing. in this house. Yeah. It was still gutted. Yeah. And I had moved everything from the office into the gutted first floor of this home. Um, All your salvaged inventory was here? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I also brought on a, uh, brought on a staff person. Yeah. Um, that uh, I, I don't remember when I brought him on exactly, but I brought on a staff person who has since gone on to do great things. Nick Thomas mm -hmm. operates Republic 
he owns the Republic yeah. uh, Club. Um, and uh, he helped quite a bit. And then, um, you know, eventually he came on. But I didn't fix this first floor of this house until the Road Home Program had resolved. Mm. And I had received a big chunk of money from the Road Home Program to give me the assistance to build back the first floor. Yeah. Um, but for one school year, we lived upstairs and had a pool house in the back with a microwave and a, <laughs> and a um, TV, a yeah. family room yeah. that we used as a, a pool, little, we used. And uh, I had, I did, early on I did replace the air conditioning system. So it, you know, the, the house was able to acclimate and again, the mold didn't expand. Right. But I was fortunate. When I brought my family back here, that a year later, you step out into the front yard and there was three houses that had people living in them. Yeah. That's it. So, um, so we did, let's see. So that comes along, we're, we're still, the interest in the music is going, is, you know, and the support from the world was great. We were selling, still able to sell music. I wanted to ask about your distribution because that's probably the biggest leg you had to stand on. Um, what was it in the beginning, and would it, how, how were you able to grow that? Well, the, the initial distributor was, uh, that I used was City Hall Records, which we would ship them like a box of 25 at a time. Mm -hmm. And they were a good little distributor for um, jazz. For a lot, for us. And they got us into a lot of places we needed to be, Tower Records. Uh -huh. um, Barnes and Noble, Borders, Virgin. I think that Virgin might have been around at that time mm -hmm. initially. I'm not sure Virgin was around back then. Um, I know the New Orleans store was not right off the bat. I don't recall. But, um, but the New Orleans store definitely was by the time 2005 rolled around. I just don't remember if it was in 97. But. Um, and they definitely were in 2000 because we did an in-store there in 2000. Um, I, re I remember that. So, uh, but they got us into where we needed to go. Then I, in 2004, I switched over to a company called Red, which was, but we got into, Red is a big distributor owned by Sony. Uh -huh. But Red requires its labels or label groups to have a threshold that we weren't achieving. Mm -hmm. Sales-wise, gotcha. so we had to get into Red through a label group called MRI, which was started by Metallica. Mm -hmm. It was to help some of their, I think, some of the friends' bands. Yeah. To, to help them, to help those sure. artists get it distributed. Yeah. So we were, so we went that channel, and I think, uh, and we're still with them uh, as far as U.S. distribution goes. Mm -hmm. I also have a distributor in the U.K that's been with us for a long time, a distributor in the Netherlands that's been with us for a long time. I had a distributor in Japan that was a smaller distributor that got us into Tower Records over there. And when an artist would go over there, they would follow them around and sell at the shows. Cool. Um, so we had, the, we had a variety of things that, um, and then we also, um, somewhere around that time, it's, it's kind of fuzzy, but we added digital 
and we signed with a company called IOTA, mm -hmm. uh, which is now <clears throat> called The Orchard. And The Orchard bought Red. Okay. And they're all owned by Sony. Okay. Um, and then to add to that Sony thing is that the company that we use to create our uh, mechanical royalty statements mm -hmm. and properly pay our songwriters and publishers for the songs, mm -hmm. I signed with a company called Royalty Share. And Royalty Share became The Orchard. So Sony, through The Orchard, takes little bits of everything we do. Sure. Um, so the iPhone is 14 years old now, something like that. Yeah. Um, before the iPhone, there we were still. I think it was. So it was like 2008-ish, nine. So I think this was all. I try to measure up like Katrina versus digital. Yeah, it's a lot. But these hurdles, these hurdles that I'm constantly dealing with, some of them extremely major, like losing my wife or, or losing my home, um, and then the hurdles like Walmart and Circuit City and Best Buy yeah. and all of that garbage. Um, and I say garbage because Walmart destroyed music retail, in my opinion. Uh -huh. They devalued music mm. when they offer 7.99 CDs to get people in the door and demand that the wholesale price be lower for them than anyone else. Yeah. And that kind of, we had, a, we had a bad experience trying to sell to them one time. And it, but the whole big box retail thing kind of destroyed the value of music initially. It was a big hurdle, that was a big one. But then dealing with some of the better companies, the Tower Records and Borders and Barnes and Noble, some of the bigger chains, uh -huh. That was really a lot of good. It was. It was. It worked for us well. Um, but when they weren't there anymore, we and we went to more to, to digital or to looking at the, say the, thirty best independent record stores in the country. Yeah. Um, that worked even. That worked better. And a comp And then some place like uh, Louisiana Music Factory, which I say some place like, but there's no place like. It's, yeah. For us, it's the place, music retail place. Um, there are other really good re music retailers here in New Orleans that have been around for a long time as well. And we like to sell to Peaches and Euclid Records and yeah. Nola Mix and Sisters in Christ. And there's all the kinds of great sto record stores in the city. Um, but no, but no place like Louisiana Music Factory for us over the years. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, you know, but we had other spots, Waterloo and the Tower Records around the country and the Virgin Megastores around the country all helped us get our music out there. Yeah. And we're available for us to do in stores when we asked, uh, when our artists would go to town. Uh, and we were utilizing that, awesome, that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, then the, the hurdle of, of digital music and downloads with the introduction of like the iPhone and um, Napster and so forth, that was really good for a while. And I had finally kind of bought into downloads and we offer downloads on our website. 
Just kind of bought into the idea of it, you mean? Yeah, I mean, I still would prefer someone, even today, I'd prefer someone buy a CD from us. Sure. Um, we have a lot. We have a, we have a lot in self-storage. We have a lot in inventory. Yeah. I'd, I'd prefer people buy CDs. It's a, a better, a better or, or vinyl, but we don't put a lot of things on vinyl yet. Um, but I'd prefer that. But I was... Like finally, like okay, downloads. Well, you're going to buy. You're buying a download. It's the most effective means of distribution. You're not. You're not shipping from from our. You know, take a CD manufacturer to us, which goes to probably to our, some here, some self storage. Yeah. Then if it's going to like Borders or Barnes and Noble, forget about Borders. They're not around anymore. Barnes and Noble. You're going to go to their central warehouse, then you're going to go to the store, you know, and then when there's returns, you're going to go back to their central warehouse and then back to our distributor and then back to us. It's just, that's not, a, that's not effective. It's, right. it's a lot of costs involved in now all of that CD or vinyl movement. Um, so a download, you know, right now while we're speaking, somebody could be downloading. Sure. 9.99 is going into our, um, into our bank a day or two from now and we pay our mechanical royalties to the songwriters and the publishers a few months later the dollar a piece from that album sale approximately the rest gets split up on your on the consumers end they've got the all the music in in cd quality sure they've got all the artwork the, they've got the cd booklet in digital format they can see the line. They see the credits. They see the yeah. all the people that went into making that music. Sure. And um, it's it's great. It's um, and we still sell a few downloads now, but streaming is is so convenient. And I'm certainly guilty of like, everyone. Of <laughs> no matter how you feel about of it. Of saying, hey, play, play. Um, Whatever. Earth, Wind, and Fire Radio. Yeah. You know, but I don't know what's coming each each fifteenth of the month. Yeah. I don't know what's coming, and um, the money gets wired, and all you know the the orchard gets our music out to sixty different platforms. They accumulate all the money and send us a. They take their percentage, send us the rest, goes into our bank. It's reliable. It's a very reliable. I, I like the company. That uh, we get paid on time. Mm -hmm. the, the statements, all of the digital data, the tens of thousands of lines of data of ISRC codes, which is the unique identifier for the song, and the yeah. UPC code. All that stuff is all <clears throat> in the file, and the and all that data gets uploaded into Royalty Share or the orchard now for the mechanical royalty processing yes um it's a it's the system is um the system all works but it's a kind of a black box and i don't necessarily know why youtube pays us this and spotify pays us this and and title pays us this and yeah um but we end up getting something and it's usually enough to pay my employee and it's usually enough to pay for our self-storage unit, and then, and it's usually enough to pay mechanical royalties. And then, if there's more money left, it's we can maybe make an album, or reorder some inventory, yeah. or make or consider signing a new artist. Yeah. So 
that saying all that, it's like we used to make all these records that cost us quite a bit of money to make, hiring all of the artists, the sure. studio costs and all that. But over the last five years, we've more been forced to take a finished product. So the artists that we've signed, I want to make sure I didn't leave any video off. When, after Katrina, I guess we signed Jeremy Davenport, Deville Crawford, mm -hmm. the Rebirth Brass Band. Um, we signed a young artist named Soraya. We signed Lena Prima, Bonorama, and most recently we signed uh, Kevin and the Blues Groovers. Mm -hmm. Most of the more recent al albums have been licensing deals, finished product. We, we paid a manufacturer, we paid a, the in, small amounts to advertise and promote initially, and we just, if they sell, they sell, and if we can continue to promote, we continue to, you know, we put the money that comes in into promotion, but we don't sink, we don't put ourselves in the hole very far anymore. We just can't afford that. Sure. Because we have just no idea. Yeah, it's a what, shallow pool. What's going to go into the bank that month. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, um, I mean, with the exception of Kermit Ruffins, uh, you were involved in making that, but... I mean, shortly thereafter, was it, was it a similar model, not so much as how things have become digital, but was it a similar model where you were taking on artists that had a finished product in hand? Um, take John Cleary's albums. John, John did record most of that album, and I bought it from him okay. the, initially. The second album, that's when we, when we signed. He had already worked on an album uh, quite a bit. And I bought it, paid for, paid back all of the costs, and and then paid for all the all the promotion and marketing. It was basically tr traditionally the way we had done it, except that he had taken care of getting everybody paid initially, and I paid him back. Yeah. Um, and when John stopped doing records with me, it was because I did not want to. He wanted to own masters, and I didn't want to do business that way. And that's got its advantages to an artist who's equipped to capitalize on owning the master. But mm. owning a master, which I own a lot of, only goes so far. If as far not, as you can push it. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, it's, owning the master is just like owning artwork in, on the walls. It's you know, if, if it's, sitting, it's sitting there on the wall, unless you're doing something to push it. So yeah. Um, so John started doing albums that I wasn't prepared to do at that time on his own and finding companies that would license his music from it, which uh -huh. I wasn't doing at that time. So, but that was the first time I was thinking, well, maybe I could do, maybe I should do some, maybe I could do licensing. Uh -huh. And so I've, when I've really run into these situations where I've, where I really don't want to sink, I don't want to put 30 grand into making an album. Mm -hmm. I've gone to that model more. Um, I'd like to continue to go back to, you know, setting up studio time and all of that. But that's not my forte. I don't know anything about the recording process other than the little bit that I witness when I sure. go by and hand people <clears throat> checks. It's just not a bit, It's just not something I ever cared to learn about. Um, I leave that up to the pro the producers. Sure. And we've used some great producers. Tracy Freeman has produced albums for us for. Almost every, all but one Kermit Ruffins album. 
both Rebirth Brass Band albums, Jeremy Davenport's Bonoramas. Um, I think that might, but he's done all that, and he's done all the Harry, almost all the Harry County Juniors, and Papa Crow's Funk, and a bunch of other sure. bands in town. So I leave those, all those to the to a guy like Harry, to a guy like uh, Tracy. Like I said, Delphio Marsalis produced albums. Mark Bingham, um, Jerry Brock, you know, people who know something about that process, and and then. But you're placing some of these players. You're putting some of these players in place. Yes. To kind of shore up yes. your your personal interest in it. Yes. Yes. Let me ask you though, um, with the onset of digital being such a, a tidal wave in music, does your involvement, because your involvement started basically on a personal level. It was personal relationships mm -hmm. that you used to help the Cutting Edge Music Conference two years in a row. It was personal relationships that, that found your way to uh, the first album that you had um, involvement with. Um, does, does all of the digital process, does it kind of remove that from, that, that, that element from your day to day? Um. So, it, it it removes a lot. It seems like it removes it does. a lot. Um, for me, I don't get to. I don't get to see. I would. We had probably fifty retailers in New Orleans, for example. Mm -hmm. And I always, even when we had a large staff, and even when we just had, I, I grew the company back until COVID. It were, there were two full-time people working here uh -huh. with me out of my home office. Um, one of whom was responsible for all the retail. But I always kept a dozen of the retail spots to myself, coffee shops and so forth, because I liked going around sure. and seeing a display that needed to have five or six new CDs every few couple few weeks, so it, which is slowed down. But we still have some of those out there. But that contact, just actually physical, just here's here's an invoice. You here's your copy. You sign. You know, I'm I'm dropping off some more product. Mm -hmm. I get to see, the, you know, physically that there is product being sold. Yeah. I've always been the guy who packages up all the web sales. Again, it's it's a weird thing, but that's just the chore. That I've always wanted to do. I like, even though it's just somebody's, often it's, often it's just somebody's name, or it might be somebody whose name I recognize because they've ordered from us 10 times. But I like seeing the order come in, packaging up the material, bringing it to the post office, and, and knowing that there's, a, there's at least a connection there. Sure. Somebody's on the other end about to receive this music and yeah. that we've turned on to it or that has been turned on to it because... They want to see an artist perform. And what we have always done is promote every show that, are, that we are aware of that our artists do. And that's still an important, that's still probably the most important ingredient of what we are doing for our artists today mm -hmm. within the digital world, is that we're letting people know where they're going to be. Sure. And because that's what, that is what develops fans. And that's what reminds people that they should go stream some music or buy some downloads or buy some vinyl. Yeah. And uh, you know, we've over 26 years we've developed a pretty good database of 
people to contact and let them know about new product and let them know when their artists are going to be in their city. And sure. So, um, but the but digital itself compared to let's say making manufacturing CDs that alone hasn't really that alone hasn't necessarily changed the personal. Yeah, level. it just removes all tangible. All tangibility. The tangibility, and it, though. It's, it's kind of it like, you know, even if you're just like, you get to see it and feel it and yeah. smell it and check out every corner of it and just sort of have this intimate knowledge and maybe it's useful facts, maybe it's useless facts, but you know it's there, you feel it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, uh, it's kind of a struggle. I mean, I, I talk with people all the time and we all agree that because, you know, I'm part of a, of a generation that could still uh, look at an album and smell it you know, and and just uh, check out the B-side or, you know, the, the, find that gem that nobody ever considered or mentioned or never got radio play. Things of this nature, you know. Um, and they're all, they're not the music itself. It's just all of the things that, you know, you or him or her or me, somebody else loves for some certain reason. It's, it's got, you know, so, so many facets of appeal. Um, just as the the personal relationships that you had, you know, uh, big big plus for you, a big reason to um, stay so intimately involved or have interest in being intimately involved. Yeah, I I think that um, probably the biggest disruptor um, after uh, there have been so many disruptors. It's, I don't like even saying that because it 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 it, it, it you know, watching. Uh, the, the the accident or Katrina, these are huge things that affected lots of people. Um, but COVID's been a big disruptor, and in, you know, in the the ability to see people having fun. Sure. Right. So, or even now, I've I've I relinquished the uh, when I have a th I have a thirteen year old son, mm -hmm. and um, and I've been married for. Uh, my to Kara for 15 years now so and to and together with her for 18 I think it's been 18 18 years so I kind of gave up some of the going out till midnight sure things and selling CDs at shows but I used to love that too yeah I would set up and help the artists sell or not help we'd sell this we'd sell this stuff and that's that was really in, in the middle of it because you're getting to see yeah. people having a good time and getting to watch inventory move. I would drive, I, I would, um, early on, I was making trips with Los Hombres Calientes and Kermit and uh, John Cleary went to, I went to John's first record. He got to open for Bonnie Raitt for 40 shows. And um, I did some of that tour. Um, Helping sell merch, you know, coordinate coordinating some of that. Um, but he did like forty shows, opening for and performing in her band. But getting to go see eight thousand, ten thousand people watching your artist perform, or going to the Greek Theater, uh, Los Hombres Calientes, opening for Nina Simone, yeah, or Joe wow. Cocker, uh, or playing the Playboy Jazz Festival, or you know, those kinds of experiences. Then you really get to be 
in the middle of it and yeah. see the uh, see what it is that that we were doing because we were helping these artists yeah. get to that level with the promotion and the marketing and the putting you know putting the records out and you know the headhunters when I signed them. Bill Summers had been, you know, on the first, the, the top-selling jazz album of all time before, before, my, before CDs came out and they re-released things like Miles Davis, yeah. Kind of Blue, and John, and John Coltrane. The Headhunters was, had been the top-selling album of all time in jazz. And so he's on that one. And, and so you get a guy like the Headhunters. I signed a band. I signed the Headhunters to a record called Evolution Revolution. We rented a tour bus for them. And I had my three little kids... Um, following them around for three or four shows nice. in North Carolina and so yeah. forth. And um, uh, so I had a lot of those kind of experiences over the years. They yeah. were a lot of fun. COVID kind of put a halt to that for a little while, but things are, things are getting really good again they for really musicians. Are. And, um, but that's the thing that everybody can, that's the thing that musicians, it's the only thing they can really count on right now. Mm -hmm. is their live performance and the money they receive from the live performance. Yeah. Because if, if they're doing... If, I know what the numbers look like for streaming. And unless you're a superstar. That's what just, everybody's saying right now, believe me. They'll, so. they'll be uh, in upheaval soon, sooner than later, hopefully. You know? um, and it's not just for the, the peers that miss the good old days of, of vinyl or CDs or whatever else. You know? It'll be for reasons like that. Um, it's funny that you brought up uh, promoting for your artists' uh, shows because um, that was one of the questions I had written down to ask you uh, because on your site in the About section, it talks about promoting that first album, Kermit Ruffin's first album, with you. And that's not typical that you would be, you know, out there passing out flyers. Not a, not a label owner for sure. Yeah. Um, no, it's that. That was, that was something I enjoyed, um, and it was something that I did a lot of for a long time. Um, but once I was, and even even after, even when I was a single father, I still was able to do some of that um, with the help I had. Mm -hmm. But um, with a young child, I haven't done as much of that. Uh, but I had staff that did. You know, I had staff or. Uh, some people that that was the only thing they did, and I had a but I had a staff person until COVID hit. I had a staff person who managed a team of people who would go to the Blue Nile on a Friday night and sell Kermit CDs or sure. and stuff. So we were doing that. Um, I had to let that all end, and I've not brought it back. Mm -hmm. And I've because our artists do go on the road and they do know how to sell their own merch. I've left that all in their hands, sure. even when they're in New Orleans. Yeah. But I have artists that we record last recorded nearly 20 years ago, who still get Basin Street. If I promise you that if you looked at their, if you looked at their name, and the label that most recently put out their music, yeah, on social media, and you looked at their name and us. There would be a lot more by an order of magnitude more, or two orders of magnitude more <clears throat> connections between them. Because I don't let anybody go. I'm yeah. still going to always try to push their albums, their yeah. first, their music. And, I, and the initial reason I signed them was because I really like them sure. as people. Yeah. So I want to help them. 
Yeah. And if they move on and they do something on their own, or they, that's just fine. Yeah. But I'm, I, if I own something else in the cat that that I can help us and them, I'm going to keep pushing. And so, I don't want someone to go to Washington D.C. and play at uh, Hamilton and not have and not remind all of the fans of Basin Street Records or that artist or another artist on my label who's been there, but I have a new artist that's going there. I want people to check them out. Yeah. You know? It's not because we have fans, we have people whose names we've accumulated and I want to make sure that we've somehow or another. Now, the city of New Orleans put a stop to putting posters on telephone poles right. or I would probably still have that being done. Yeah. Um, they made that illegal. I I put I used to do that in front of the police precinct on over by um, magazine and and Napoleon, and get you know be warned. Uh, if I did it again, I would be cleaning all the yeah. neutral ground. <laughs> um, uh, so you know those, but you know now it's social media. Yeah, it's making sure that we at least most days. I'll be kind of on a vacation this week, but. Most days that we put information out there to let people know where we're perform where our artists will be, um, uh, remind them where to stream the music, remind them where the sure, you know, yeah. and and hopefully we and and thanks to like thank you for you know this kind of thing. I I, I hope to like also like people need to realize that it's if they when they love a band when they love a label. If you can't buy a, if you don't want to buy an album, buy a hat or buy a T-shirt. Sure. That's, those yeah, are the every little bit that, counts. Yeah. Those Absolutely. are the things that help um, make more music. Sure. Yeah. Um, tell everybody where they can find your stuff so that they're aware. Uh, well, um, BasinStreetRecords.com, all spelled out. Mm -hmm. um, you can find it at any streaming platform. Just about any digital platform. So they can look up Basin Street on can, a streaming if, platform if you, and they'll come across you your catalog. Up, you can look up um, easy, the easiest thing. We have a we have a pinned a pinned post on Twitter. It's got a nice, easy to use hyperlink that has links to every store for every album. Okay. Whether it's our website or whether or whatever, but our website. BasinStreetRecords.com. Um, you can go to, uh, and it'll. You, from there, you'll find it. Okay. If, but uh, otherwise, our artists are all out there. Our most recent artist, um, I, I, I would like to say that, like, we have four of our artists have won Grammy, have won Grammy nominations. Wow. Three of them are, are won Grammy awards. Um, almost everybody has won local offbeat or gambit awards most recently kevin and the blues groovers were one of the three finalists for a gambit and an offbeat yeah. award uh kevin's was recently kevin and the blues groovers just completed a tour of europe that was a super success wow. um he while we were in the conversations about doing the label doing a record he um ended up getting an opportunity to be on American Idol and was on American Idol before we ever put out his record. Fantastic. Um, and he made it to the showstopper round of 59 wow. in Los Angeles and um, made a lot of uh, good, got a lot of good exposure from it and, yeah. uh, and 
and he's he's a season at this point. He's a 23 year old seasoned veteran. All right. Okay. Uh, so he's been he's been doing his thing for a while now. But uh, uh, but but and, and talking about Kevin for a sec, he was um, he was went to the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Uh -huh. He also went to the Louis Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp, and I'm a board member of the Summer Jazz Camp for over 20 years now. Okay. So he's the first. He's probably the second artist. Devell Crawford tells me that he was in the very first, very first uh, summer jazz camp. Jeez. Okay. Um, so he was probably the first of the graduates of that program nice. to be on the label. But Kevin's the first one that um, that I'm positive was in that program for several years. I think he was in it for five years. Yeah. But it's a great it's a great program for kids who are like. 10 to 21 years old who have a some proficiency on their instrument mm -hmm. who want to learn jazz from the best nice um, but um so i rec i would i also ask that people check out sure lewis armstrong summer jazz camp okay 10 to 21 you said ages 10 to 21 10 to 21 okay cool well thank you man yeah thank I appreciate you. it i appreciate it awesome check it out we all pretty much start off like jam bands we get together, we push our souls out to the speakers, we look around the stage and read off of one another and, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person's going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans, and that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening.